in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there, and as you're turning there, I'd like to make a few things, uh, a few specific things about the passage before we get into it. Uh, obviously, verses 14 through 21 is Paul's prayer. And uh, I believe this prayer serves as a hinge. He's kind of concluding and wrapping up in his prayer what all God has done for us in Christ, but it also leads us into what we are to do as a practical result, our walk in Christ. So in chapters 1 through 3, it's who we are in Christ, or better yet, what God has done for us in Christ. Then 4, 5, and 6 is our walk with Christ. Does that make sense? In between this is his prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, which I think, I believe, serves as a hinge, a conclusion of what he's been talking about, writing about, and introduces us into chapter Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Up until now, just as a quick review, we have learned in chapter 1 what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That means God thought about you before you were born. Amen? He thought about you. He knew who you were. He knew who you were going to be. He knew what you would do. He knew how you would think. He had wired you, therefore he knew everything about you before you were even born and still chose you anyway. Amen? Eternal security, not just in the future, but in the past. Also, in verse 4 and 5, in love he predestined us according to his will. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. In verse 10 and 11, in him we have attained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him also you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So in him, in him, and in him. You get to chapter 2, and we are made alive. Verse 5, we are made alive together in him or with him. God has done all these things. You are secure. Your salvation is based upon his work, not our work, not your work, not anything we have done. But he doesn't stop there. We continue on in chapter 2, and we read that not only are we made alive with Christ, but we are his what? Workmanship. Verse 10. That we are no longer strangers. We are fellow citizens. We are of God's household. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are built together into a holy temple. All this we have in common, and all this is the reason for Paul's prayer. So when you get to chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, For this reason, for all these things that I've written about in chapters 1 and 2, for this reason, I want to begin to pray for you. And we enter into that prayer in verse 14 this morning. I want you to notice one more thing. One more thing. And it really will launch us into the sermon this morning, into our text. And everything that he has said, here's it, here it is, everything that he has said up to this point in chapters 1 and 2 all flow from chapter 1 verse 3 who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Paul is explaining and expounding upon all of these heavenly eternal infinite blessings that God has bestowed upon his children but I want you to know this thing this one thing that undergirds all of this it is that it is driven by God's unconditional sacrificial love for you. Again, let me make reference to chapter 1, verse 4. In love, he predestined your adoption. Then you get to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great what? Love. Because of his great love which, with which he has loved us. So we talk about all these blessings that Paul wrote about, both individually and corporately. They're driven by the one quality of God that is called love. And that's what Paul prays in this prayer is this, that we would understand more and more and more exactly the intensity, the breadth, the height, the depth, and the width of this love. Why? Why does he focus and hone in on the love of God for us? Why is this so important? Because it's his love that is our strength to walk the daily Christian life, which he will launch us into in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He doesn't want our strength to come from ourselves. He doesn't want our strength to come from anything outside of himself. He's saying, my children, stop, wait. Before I launch into the Christian walk, I want the power of your walk to be my love for you. So let's stand together and read Paul's prayer out of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, verses 14 through 21. <clears throat> Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of this word. Heavenly Father, God, we ask for your blessing this morning. God, we just don't want to hear it. I don't want to just comprehend this passage. It's not just here for me to have the knowledge of your love. God, you want the knowledge of your love to go from my brain to my heart so that your love actually drives me into a walk of obedience. It's never meant to stay in our brains. For the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith Paul teaches us. It is no different here. So God, I pray that with the power of your spirit, we would listen, we would hear. I pray, dear God, you'd have mercy on me as I make a small attempt to explain your word to your people for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The outline is really simple. I try to simplify it as much as possible. I looked at four or five really good sound commentaries. I came up with this one. There's three points. Paul has an invocation. Okay. This would be very familiar. Intercession and benediction. Uh, the invocation is verses 14, 15, and the first part is 16, and that's where I'd like us to begin. I love looking at Paul's approach to the throne of grace. There are three things here. Uh, number one, Paul is driven by a love for others. Paul's not praying for himself here. He's praying for the church. So if you want to know how to pray for one another, how, how do we pray for each other in this room? We're going to learn right here what to pray for. 
Okay? We're really good at praying for one another physically. We find out a, a physical problem, okay, a financial problem, or something like that, uh, a problem that's outside of us. We were really good for praying for one another. But here, this is a spiritual prayer. A prayer for the inner man, the inner person, the inner child of God. And, and, and here we glean what God, the heart of God is. Paul prays the heart of God and how we are to pray for one another spiritually. Which means this. When you don't know how to pray for somebody, if you run out of physical requests for somebody, you don't, you, you don't run out of prayer requests. Pray for them spiritually. As a matter of fact, this kind of prayer should transcend our prayer life for all people. Amen? For, for one another. So, let me begin here. First, what Paul does is, first of all, he's driven by a love for others. He's driven by a love for the Gentile Christians. Now, not everybody in his day were driven by a love for them. They were driven by a love for the Jewish Christians, not the Gentile Christians. But we learned last week that Paul was called, even in Acts chapter 9, in his conversion, to a ministry to the Gentiles who he grew to dearly love more and more. As a matter of fact, we look at verse 1 and verse 14 of chapter 3, and we see that Paul was in chains for them. Now, now there's some evidence of love right there, right? I mean, the evidence that God loves us is what? Christ hanging on the cross. Well, here we have the evidence of Paul's love for the church and that he was in prison for preaching the gospel to them. Okay? And so we see this right off the bat. I also was thinking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I was actually this morning earlier on, in verses 1 through 12, Paul gives us a powerful example of this attitude uh, that, that was with him as he brought the gospel to a Gentile world. And I want you to turn there, if you will, for a moment. It's very precious. It's actually the word that comes to mind is sweet. It's very sweet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to just point out a couple of things. And first of all, he comes to them as a mother would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. This is how we came to you. When we brought the gospel to Thessalonica, we came to you as a mother would her own children. What an attitude. An attitude of gentleness and tender care. Verse 7. Having so fond of affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. We didn't just preach the gospel to you. We got involved in your lives. We shared our lives. So when they shared the gospel, it was verbally, but it was also very personal. You see that in verses 7 and 8. Go on down to verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, here's the second illustration or metaphor as what? A father would his own children. Paul had a two-pronged approach. It was a parental approach. He took on the quality of a mother who tenderly cares for, for children, but yet the father who would implore and encourage them to move forward. So dads do. They push him a little bit. Not too far because they don't want to exasperate him, but they don't like him just sitting in the nest. Right? The mother loves to nurture them in the nest. The father's responsibility is to push them to go further to the fly on their own outside of the nest, so to speak. It's healthy parenting, by the way. You want to just kind of a side note? When moms and dads get together, they are one in this and they share in this. The children need both, not one or the other. They need both. So I love this. Just as I 
just as you, excuse me, know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. What was he imploring them and encouraging them? Verse 12, to walk in a manner worthy of, the, of God. The God who called you to his own kingdom and glory. Come on, you can walk, you can do this. You can trust God. Get rid of this. Put off this and put on that. Walk in Christ. Come on, you need to do this. You need encouragement. You need to be exhorted. We need that encouragement in each other's lives. I need that exhortation. I need that encouragement. That's why I need you to be in the Word of God. So that when I'm with you, you have the strength to tenderly care for me, or maybe as a father, to implore me and encourage me to press on in my relationship with Jesus Christ. But this, I think, 1 Thessalonians 2 is a great reflection of Paul's attitude towards all the Gentile churches that he planted. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 3 to our text this morning. First of all, we see that he was driven by a love for others. So he's praying for Second of all, in this indication, we see an example of humble submission. Humble submission. He went to the Father. Look at this. For this reason, I have bowed my knees before the Father. He did not go to God in fear, or to a God who was indifferent and didn't care, a God who was aloof. He went to a Father who did care, who does care. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. Go to Psalm 139. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he still cares for you. He knows every thought that's gone through your mind this week. Yet he still loves you. Wow. He knows you at your weakest moment. He knows you at your dirtiest thought. And yet he still loves you. See, that's why God has said, when you're in sin, I still want you to come to me, but come to me this way. Confess your sin. Come to me through my son. He's taking care of you. He's forgiving you, but for the fellowship, for the sake of fellowship, because I want to work you, I want to love you, I want to, I want to use you, I want to mold you, shape you. Before you come to me, I want you to admit that what you did was wrong. I want you to agree with me and my word that this lifestyle or how you treated this person or whatever it is, was wrong. Let's take care of that. And when you take care of that, I'm all ears. And I want you to take care of it. I've written to you how to take care of it. You're, you're, my, you're my son. You're my daughter. And, and though you're insane, you don't lose your last name. You're still my child. It's not an issue of a relationship. It becomes an issue of fellowship now. And he goes, that's what I'm talking about. Paul understood this. Before the Father... He goes with respect. We see that because he bowed his knees. Now, bowing your knees in prayer is never mandated in Scripture. We see it both in the Old and New Testament. But it's never a mandate. It's really a symbol, an outward expression of our inward attitude, an inward reality towards God, of his supreme authority, that you approach the throne of grace with great respect and humble submission. You come to the throne because God, no matter how you answer my prayer, I want to walk in. I want to say, yes, sir, yes, dad. Yes, Dad. Respect for God's supreme authority. As the psalmist says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And thus he writes in verse 15, From whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, as in reference to God as the Creator. 
Your heavenly Father is the creator of the universe. Therefore, he is in control of all things. He's in control of your sin. He dealt with your sin. He sent his son to deal with that. Therefore, his love is a sovereign love, which will, Paul will pray about in just a moment. So Paul's prayer exemplifies humble submission to a supreme authority that created this universe, who is now our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't take verse 15 as the modern liberals do, as they teach a universal fatherhood, a universal motherhood, a universal brotherhood, where all this is in reference to how God, because God's created everybody, everybody's going to be okay. No, the Bible presents, let me add this, the Bible presents two fathers in Scripture. Father number one is our Heavenly Father. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He is your Heavenly Father. There's also another Father, He's called Satan. And He is the Father of those who reject Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly presents that. But let's go forward in our text. I want to point out another thing. I love this part. Verse 16. That He would grant you. That He would grant you. Paul understood something about God. God loves to give. God loves to give. Now, I'm not talking materialistically. I'm not talking in things. I'm not talking about money and wealth. God loves to give spiritually. That's the character of God. That's what a loving father loves to give. Because of love, he is gracious. And Paul understood this. And this character of God is what's driving these requests that will flow from this. The content will follow. That he would grant you. And notice what he says next. According to the riches of his glory. Not out of, but according to. Here's the difference. A millionaire who gives $5 is getting out of his wealth. A millionaire that gives $50,000 is giving according to his wealth. You get the picture. God gives according to. And by the way, his riches are not a million dollars. His riches are eternal. They are infinite. And beloved, we live in a day and age where I use the word riches and automatically you might identify that with a, a materialistic point of view. But Paul nowhere has that in mind in this text. As a matter of fact, as he goes on, we know in the end of verse 16, he's talking about the inner man, not the outer man. He's talking about the spiritual wealth of heaven. He's talking about the wealth of his love, the wealth of his holiness, the wealth of his righteousness, the wealth of his love, which drives us to follow Christ regardless of any kind of external riches that we may or may not have. So our walk with God is not contingent upon what we have or do not have. It is who we are. That's why Paul learned to be content in all things. Because his life was not driven by possessions. His life was not driven by anything external. His life was driven by God's love for him. And therefore, you can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. The Christ that is in you. The Christ who is our hope. We live in a day and age where we get this false gospel. You know where I'm going. I have to scratch for a minute. Or I itch. It's his health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's a counterfeit from the devil himself. It is false. Don't buy into it. They would interpret passages such as this and say, here, God, God has plenty of riches. He wants you to be wealthy. That is not what Paul is talking about here. 
He's talking about the inner man. We just read a few words later on in verse 16. To be strengthened with power through his spirit. Where? In reference to the inner man. It's the dative. In reference to the inner man. Not the outer man. Not in reference to things, but who we are in Christ. So Paul does not have in mind physical or mental riches. He has in mind spiritual riches because of the inner man. And second, because he's getting ready to talk about the believer's walk. He's, he's not just wrapping up what he's talked about. He's beginning to introduce the new topic about our walk with Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. There's that fatherly thing. I implore you. I implore you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we can say is doctrine. 4, 5, and 6 is, now let's walk in it. Let's practice it. We see this word walk uh, smattered about the passages. For example, again in verse 17 of chapter 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Which that would be a reference to the unbelieving world. Don't walk anymore as an unbeliever. You're in Christ. You're different. You used to say yes to all these things. Now you learn to say no. You used to say no to Bible reading and go to church. Now you're saying yes. You're different now. You're in Christ. He makes all the difference in the world. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. There's that word again. Walk. And that Greek word means conduct your life. Live now. Life. Live differently. Verse 8. The very, very end, excuse me, of verse 8. Walk as children of light. Verse 15. Therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. We'll be looking at these chapters in the months ahead. Back to our text. We see that this is Paul's indication, driven by a love for others, but done with a heart of humble submission, but also a heart that knew God, that God loved to give to his children for the purpose of their spiritual well-being and their spiritual health. Now we get to Paul's intercession. In the end of verse 16 through 17, 18, and 19, we now come across the content of Paul's prayer request. Number one, they would be empowered by the Spirit in the inner man, verse 16, at the end of verse 16. This is the real person, by the way, isn't it? Think about it. The inner man, the real you, who you are on the inside, in reference to how you think, your heart, uh, the seat of your affections, the character. This is who we are as people. We don't define ourselves by what we do. Michael Jordan, he's defined by what he does. The greatest basketball player in the world, right? Never lived. But is that who he is? No, that's what he's done. And, and see, that's what, the world, that's what the world wants us to be identified by, what we do, what we achieved. But not, we don't, we, our identity comes from what Christ has achieved for us. Not what we achieve. And we can do great things as Christians, but that's not where we get our identity. Our identity comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself. That's the inner, that's the real true us. Those who are in Christ. The heart is the seat of the, the emotions, the desire, and the will. So it says, I want you to be empowered on the inside by the Spirit in the inner man. How do you do that? I'm going to get ahead of myself just a little bit. You do that by getting into the Spirit's Word. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to be in His Word. If you say you're filled with the Spirit and not been in His Word, 
for a while, then you're fooling yourself and you're not filled with the Spirit. It's tough, but it's true. We'll learn more about that as we move forward as well. The ministry of the Spirit is later on in chapter 5 of Ephesians. But what's the purpose of all this? We go on, verse 17, so that. Now there's a purpose statement. Why are we to be strengthened and empowered in the inner man? Why does Paul pray for that request? So that what happens? What's the result? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love the word dwell. It means to take up residence. Christ desires to take up residence in our lives. To be at home. He has in mind our sanctification here. He's not talking about being saved. He's saying you are in Christ, you are saved, you're regenerate. Now let's talk about Christ making himself at home in your life. You want, he's going to take up residence. He's Lord. This is why it's important to talk about following Jesus as Lord in the gospel presentation. Because we know good and well he wants to come in and dwell to take up residence. He's not just passing by. He wants to settle down in you. He's not a visitor passing through. But he's one who comes home and sits and stays and begins to rule and reign in our lives. What a beautiful picture. We go on to verse 17. He begins to unfold this purpose, this reason, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith by trusting him. And notice what he says is, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. I love where he goes with this. Here's the key. He wants to come in and settle in. He's going to. That's why he saved you. He didn't save you not to settle in. He didn't save you to be a visitor in your life. He saved you to enter into you and to take up residence in your life because he wants to control it and lead you. And, and But what's the key to that? It's this. Under, listen to me. Just look at me. It's understanding how much he loves you. You're not going to submit to someone you don't think loves you. We're going to see that in Ephesians chapter 5 with husbands and wives. But the more we grow in understanding and knowledge of how much God loves me, the more submissive I will be. The more I'll be willing to let go. What's the key to trusting God? The love of God. Paul understood this. And he prayed this because he wrote about chapters 1 and 2 and 3 about how much God loves us that he's done all this for us in Christ. All these spiritual blessings. That God loves you infinitely and eternally. has gone to the nth degree to secure your salvation. To place you in his son. That forgiveness is forever. It's eternal. It's past, present, and even your future sins. It's all taken care of in Christ. Paul says... Christ takes up residence in your life. I'm praying that will happen. You will become strong, and that means you will be rooted and grounded in love, verse 17. To be rooted means to be planted in his love. Roots go down to the rich soil. The roots get the nourishment for the plant. So it's in reference to you want to become strong. You want nourishment? Then grow in your understanding of God's love for you. Be rooted in his love. Draw your strength and nutrition from his love. He wants you to get it nowhere else, by the way. Right? God's saying, my love is holy and pure. 
My love is infinite. My love is eternal in value. There's nothing greater than my love. I want you to be nourished. I want you to become strong. But you've got to be rooted in my love to get the nutrients that you need to live the a walk of following Jesus, the walk of following Christ. I love the word it means grounded. It simply means to stability. It's a reference to stability and security. It's the foundation upon which we live our lives and our lives are built. That means good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks. Here's a question. Does God love you any less in a bad week? No. God's not wishy-washy. See, we have a hard time as children of God to understand His love is unconditional. There's no conditions attached. So if you had a bad week, He still loves you with the same kind of love that He loved you on a good week because your performance does not dictate God's love for you. He dictates His own love for you. He chose you in love. God first loved you. And he didn't love you in response in response to you doing anything, particularly loving him. Excuse me, sorry. Get a little excitable. Anyway. <clears throat> See that? So beloved, that's why God says, on a really bad week or a bad month, a real bad time struggling with sin, here's what I want you to do because I love you so much, child. My son, my daughter, just confess it. Agree with me. Identify it the way I identify it. Call out for what it is. Get help. Do whatever. You know, get kind of whatever. Stop it. But get that attitude of repentance and, and then come to me. Because God longs for that fellowship with the ones he loves. Beloved, here's what Paul's saying. We talk about walking as Christians. We talk about the Christian life. We must talk about it on the foundation of God's love for us. To try to do chapters 4, 5, and 6, to try to walk as Christians not being founded on the love of God is absolutely futile. You'll fall every time. And then when you fall, you're not going to know what to do. But when you're walking in Christ based upon His love for you, you know what to do with good weeks and bad weeks. On a good week, you give God in praise because it's really Him to begin with. He graced you with the ability to have a good week. And if it's a bad week, you praise him anyway because he's told you what to do. Go to the advocate. Go to my son. He's forgiven you. Confess it as sin. Identify it for what it is. Come with a repentant, humble attitude. And son, I'll restore you like that. I'm not going to rub your nose in your sin. Oh, how we as humans love to do that, don't we? And even if I don't do that practically in an outward way, I often do that mentally towards people I don't like a whole lot. Because God's not that way. God's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. Right? Okay. Let's go on. My goodness. Okay. Let's move forward. We talked about being rooted and grounded in his love. Verse 18. That we would understand his love. The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Oh, I love this. I read a lot of people, a lot of even old dead Christians, old dead saints about this. I got one. I got like five or six I could have read for you this morning. How about Robert Murray McShane wrote about this, about 
verse 18, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. He said this, quote, that is like the blue sky unto which you may see clearly, but the real vastness which you cannot measure. That is like the deep, deep sea into whose bosom you can look a little way, but its depths are unfathomable. It is a breadth without a bound, length without top, and depth without bottom. And that's what Paul prays for us, that we would dive into the deep end of God's love and get drowned in it, so to speak, because it's infinite, because it's eternal. Question, does God allow his children to get in trouble? We've we got wills, we make decisions, right? Yes, use, yes, as Christians we do, we have responsibilities. Sometimes he allows it to teach us a lesson about himself. To, to dig those roots of his love deeper into our souls, to understand it in a way we never had before. Maybe God has that person in your life that's a thorn of the flesh, and that could be the very reason. I'm not saying your spouse. That's supposed to be a joke, people. That's a bad one. Bible's going to shut up, pray to me, pray to me. Right? I think Paul's throwing the flesh was a person. Not necessarily an illness, but a person who was following him around, making his life miserable. But through it all, Paul was learning how much God loved him. And God used that to, to dig his roots of love into Paul's life, into his heart. Beloved, God deals with you just as personally in your life as he would or did in a Paul's life. But that we would grasp his love, verse 18 and 19, to comprehend. Verse 19, to know. Those two words are, are, are somewhat similar, but it means to grasp, to understand, to comprehend. That's why I quoted Murray McShane. But Paul doesn't have just in mind the vastness of his love. But I want you to think in terms of richness, the quality, how sweet the love of God is. It's not just that it's big and vast and infinite and eternal. The quality of it is also beyond measure. Amen? It's sweet. It's sweet. I want to pause for a moment and uh, just mention a couple of verses about the love of God. I want you to know, according to John 17, Jesus prayed that we would know the love of God. That's his prayer. Now let me just read a little bit of that. John 17. Last two verses, I'll just stick to those. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me as my disciples. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me. This is the son talking to the father. He's saying, the love, father, you have for me would what? May be in them and I in them. And how deep is that love? How powerful is that love? Did God hold back any love? Do you think God the father is going to answer his son's prayer? The answer is called the church. The answer is called the church. The answer is you and I. The answer is us. We who are in Christ. Here's another one. Let's just go to Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? I'm in verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. 
Now will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Well, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, even though these things happen to us, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who, what? Loved us. Why do we conquer? Because we're powerful? How good we are? It's all based upon how much God loves you. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I've always asked this question for years after I executed this passage of seminary. Why didn't he say also sin? Uh-oh, we got a problem here. Sin's not mentioned, is it? It's Christ already took care of it. Doesn't need to be mentioned. The whole book of Romans is about how God took care of the sin problem. Go back to 31 through 34. Jesus is the right hand of the Father. Ah, sin problem is taken care of. No need to mention that. Done. So no matter what you experience in life, nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God because it's sovereign. Because you cannot change it. You don't want to. That's eternal security right there, is it not? How powerful. Now, how do I get to understand and know this love? Real quick, in, in, in conclusion, close to conclusion. John 15, abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, that's how you do it. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to remain attached to Him. It means to remain attached to the vine. You're a branch, you're a hook, stay there. Derive your nutrition from the vine who feeds you. And what is the one thing he wants to feed us above all else? His love for you. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Oh my goodness, Jesus loves me with the exact same kind of love that the Father loves him with. Oh, I'm at a loss for words. I'm nothing like Jesus. You see, God chooses who he loves. Ouch. I've heard nothing. I've gained nothing. My back was to God. And he's the one that turned my back around. He said, I love you. I said, my son for you. And I'm going to do everything in your life to draw you to me. I'm going to open up your eyes to see who I am and how much I love you. And you're going to spend the rest of your life discovering the richness of my love. Amen? That's walking and living the gospel. There's where we get the strength to live daily for Christ, to walk with Him. So how do we how do we draw this nourishment 
from his love? Well, by being in his word, thinking about his word, living in his word, respecting his word, welcoming his word into our lives, meditating on his word. Because all that does is produce, when I know how much God loves me, it just causes me to love him all the more. It also causes me to trust him. And how do I express that trust? By wanting to please him and walk in what his word says. But the key of all that is, folks, how much time are we spending with him discovering how much he loves us? That, that's what our prayer is based on. That's what our salvation is based on. That's what the church is based on. That's what we find in the foundation of the apostles and prophets. When we read that foundation of the word of God that the Old and New Testament prophets of New Testament apostles wrote, we discover how much God loves us. And that love is the strength to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has for us. Finally, verses 20 and 21, we'll close with this. It's for the purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, the end of verse 19, forgive me, the end of verse 19, all this is so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. I want you to get the picture in your mind what's going on here. The more we understand how much God loves us with his love, the more we are filled with him. What does that word mean? It means to be under control. It's really what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I want to be filled up with Christ. Not only do I want him to dwell and take up residence, I want him to fill my house with himself. I want him to fill this temple with himself. That's the idea that Paul has in mind here. So when that happens, we are under more under the leadership and the control and the influence of Christ himself. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me. There it is. And gave himself up for me. Paul mentions the same feeling in 4.13. Listen to what he says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And our passage this morning is the fullness of God. Here's the fullness of Christ. Go to chapter 5. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. That's why we come together to hear God's Word. That's why we have fellowship in small groups to encourage one another, to fill each other up with Christ himself so that we, not only as individuals, but collectively could say that it's no longer I, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And so Paul concludes, this God is for your glory. Look at verses 20 and 21. First of all, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. I'm praying this, Paul's saying, but he realizes God can answer this prayer beyond what I'm even praying, thinking, that right, thinking about right now. But I love verse 21. Paul's ultimate motive, ultimate reason, God. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Notice those two are together. The church and Christ. Who is the glory in the church? Christ. Who is to be lifted up above all in the church? Christ. And Paul is saying he wants the church. His desire is that the Father would so strengthen the church that we would be filled more and more with Jesus Christ. The key of that is the Father's love for us. Because the same love God has for his only begotten Son, he has for you. Thus saith the Lord.